0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Thursday, February 9. I'm your reader Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Iowa City embracing innovation in 3-D printed affordable housing. This story is by Isabella Zaluska. Local partners are looking to address the need for affordable housing in Johnson County in an innovative way by using 3-D printing. Developer Better Together 2030 is working with Alquist 3D, Hodge Construction, Axiom Consultants, and Newman Monson Architects on a 3D printed build in Iowa City that the partners believe would be the first multi story, multi unit residential building printed in North America. Construction is expected to start this summer and the developer is in conversations with the city about a potential site. Better Together has submitted an application to the Housing Trust Fund of Johnson County's Revolving Loan Program for funding support, said Katie Gerlach, Better Together 2030 Executive Director. The $1.8 million project would include six units. The three-bedroom townhomes will be sold as affordable housing to residents who earn 60% To 80% of the area median income, Gerlach said. City Manager Jeff Ruin said the project is truly a community effort with the local partners involved. He said the build would be a quality long-term asset in the city. Iowa City-based Alquist 3D is seeking to address the housing shortage facing the country by creating affordable, sustainable, and innovative homes using 3D printing technology. Zachary Manheimer, founder and chief executive officer of Alquist 3D, told the Gazette he discovered 3D printed homes made from concrete in 2016 and got obsessed. Manheimer said a 3D printed home is built much the same as a traditional build, except the walls are made out of concrete. Instead of pouring the concrete in a form, it is extruded by a giant robot. That's really the only difference, Mannheimer said. Eighty percent of the home is still built the exact same way as as any other home. We still need your electricians, plumbers, roofers, HVAC folks, all those people to build out the home. An architect still designs the home, and the design is turned into a computer file that communicates the instructions to the 3D printer. The printhead layers the concrete material in until the walls are built up. As the interior and exterior walls are built up, there is space between them to allow for electrical, plumbing, and insulation. Alquist 3D uses reinforced concrete for the walls, which is two to three times stronger than traditional concrete and sets faster. Alquist 3D has printed four homes in Virginia, with three of those homes built in partnership with Habitat for Humanity. Alquist 3D's first home, printed in Williamsburg, Virginia, is the first 3D printed, owner-occupied home in the country. Alquist 3D also is working to print 10 homes in Muscatine. The Iowa City build will use the reinforced concrete mix, but Mannheimer said the company also is experimenting with different materials such as recycled glass and recycled plastic, to help make a more sustainable mix. The ultimate one that we want to make is a hempcrete, Mannheimer said. Hemp is incredibly strong. This will be a much greener material to us. Researchers at Texas A&M University received a $3.74 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy to explore 3-D printed building using hempcrete for affordable and sustainable housing and construction. Hempcrete is made by mixing hemp powder and fibers with lime and water, according to the university. The current supply chain issues, labor shortages, and rising construction costs all come into play when looking at the future of 3D printed homes. Mannheimer said the cost right now is typically on par or slightly lower than a traditional build. We're still very early into the industry, he said. It's really a scale game. When we're printing multiple homes at a time, that's where we can achieve really high savings. It's possible that real cost savings could be realized by the second or third project in Johnson County, Manheimer said. Manheimer said the savings of 3D printed homes comes into play in three ways. Materials are more readily available and cost less. Less labor is needed, and the project takes less time to complete. For a one-story home of about 1,200 square feet, the exterior walls can be printed in 20 to 25 hours, Mannheimer said. This can shave off anywhere from one to four weeks from the traditional process of framing out a home, he added, The goal, Mannheimer said, is to get close to 30% savings by the end of 2024. With all the benefits and potential cost savings, why aren't there more 3D printed homes? Mannheimer said the industry is still very new and needs to be adopted widely. He said there are fewer than a dozen 3D printed homes in the country. There are three major things that are going to get 3D over the hump and really commercialize it, Mannheimer said. The robots need to get smaller and easier to transport, and that's already happening. Number two, the material needs to drop in cost. That is in process right now, and we're probably going to see less expensive materials here in the next six months. And the big one is experience. Alquist is launching a new program for groups that want to become a licensee or to lease printers through the company. The company also is debuting a 3D printing curriculum at Muscatine Community College this fall and students will help work on the homes being built in the area. We'd like to spread that to Johnson County as well and work with Kirkwood Community College as well as the Iowa City School District, Manheimer said. Mannheimer said Iowa is well positioned to grow as people are leaving big cities due to high cost or the expansion of remote work, as well as people moving because of climate change. But we can't bring people here if we don't have anywhere to live, and those places need to be affordable and attainable and well made, Mannheimer said. Among the larger goals is embracing innovation, he said. We want to show that Johnson County is trying to advance And Iowa as a state is trying to advance, and we want creative entrepreneurs to come to our state and help grow our economy. Also on the front page, this story by Trish Mahaffey, Conviction in Bagley Stabbing Overturned. The Iowa Court of Appeals on Wednesday overturned the second-degree murder conviction of a Marion man for fatally stabbing Chris Bagley in 2018. Ruling, the judge abused his discretion in asking the jury to continue deliberations when jurors revealed in a note open hostility toward a lone holdout juror. The court ruled that 6th Judicial District Judge Christopher Burns shouldn't have given a supplemental instruction after receiving notes from the jury in the murder trial of Drew Blanick, who since changed his name to Johnny Blanick Church. The trial judge had urged jurors who deliberated for three days to reach a unanimous verdict despite the conflict. Because the minority juror knew the court was aware of the split and the majority juror's hostility, that juror may well have reviewed the supplemental instruction in response to the third note as directing the minority to join the majority, the appeals court stated. The court also noted that the trial judge should have referred the jury to its original instruction on deliberations instead of giving a supplemental one. Bruns, in his ruling delaying Blanick Church's motion for a new trial before sentencing, said after both formal and informal discussion with the prosecution and the defense, he had provided a jury instruction previously approved by the appellate courts. He thought the instruction would be less likely to cause one juror to view it as an attempt to exert pressure for changing a position, Bruns wrote. However, the appeals court said defendants have a fundamental right to have a jury trial determined by an unanimous verdict. Blanock Church's right to the verdict of all jurors was prejudiced. The court reversed and remanded the case for a new trial. First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Monica Slaughter said the office will ask the Iowa Attorney General's Office for further review by the Iowa Supreme Court. If the office agrees, then it will go to the higher court, asking it overturn the appeals court ruling. If the court denies or upholds the appeals ruling, then the Lynn County Attorney's Office will retry Blannick Church for Bagley's murder. Stuart Bagley, Chris's father, said Wednesday the family was shook up when they learned of the appeals ruling. The thought of sitting through another trial is devastating for us, he said, but he said he is willing to do it to get justice for his son. Courtney Bagley, Chris's wife, said the ruling is devastating, infuriating, and positively soul-crushing. The reality that we are forced to put our lives, that we have finally taken control of again, on hold for a new trial is beyond anything words can convey, Courtney told the Gazette in an email on Wednesday. I want to thank the Lynn County Attorney's Office and all who have worked tirelessly, prayed, sent their love and thoughts to us through this unimaginable nightmare that is coming back to haunt us. blanock Church, 35, was convicted of second-degree murder, abuse of a corpse, and obstruction of prosecution. He was sentenced to 57 years in prison. According to testimony at the trial, Blanick hunted down Bagley, age 31, of Walker, on behalf of drug dealer Andrew Shaw, who wanted Bagley eliminated. Shaw hasn't been charged in this case. Drew Wagner was convicted in this case, testified he and Blanick found Bagley in the early morning hours of December 14, 2018, at a trailer in Cedar Rapids. Wagner, in his testimony, said he got into an argument that escalated into a shoving or wrestling match with Bagley. When Wagner had control of Bagley with his arms around him, pinning Bagley's arms down, Blanick started stabbing him. A medical examiner said Bagley was stabbed 13 times in the neck and torso. Most of the wounds to the stomach, spinal column, spleen, and abdomen could have been fatal, she said. Blanick Church claimed self-defense at trial. Blanick Church will remain in jail because he also is serving time on federal drug charges and in Lynn County for beating up a drug informant while in jail. Turning to the Iowa Today page, this story by Stephen Schmidt, Springville man killed in crash with suspected drug driver. A man was killed Tuesday in a crash after a suspected drunken driver lost control of his vehicle and collided with another vehicle on Springville Road north of Springville. According to a news release from the Linn County Sheriff's Office, emergency responders were called at 2.35 p.m. Tuesday to a fatality crash near Springville Road and Schmidt Lane. Zachary Twachtman, 31, of Anamosa has been charged with homicide by vehicle And operating under the influence. According to a criminal complaint, he smelled strongly of alcohol and failed field sobriety tests. A warrant was issued to take his blood, but the complaint doesn't say what his blood alcohol content was. According to the release, Twachtman was driving south on Springville Road when he failed to maintain control of his vehicle, swerving and striking a vehicle driven by Dylan Vasek, 46 of Springville. Vasick was pronounced dead at the scene. Twachtman was transported to the Lynn County Correctional Center with non-life-threatening injuries, according to the release. His passenger, McKenna Schofield, 25, of Anamosa, was transported by Anamosa Ambulance to Mercy Medical Center with what appeared to be non-life-threatening injuries. Vasek's wife, Bridget Vasek, said her husband was speaking on the phone with a friend over Bluetooth when the crash happened. The friend called her, and she immediately went to the scene with her father. She was there with her husband when he died. He was an amazing father and brother and husband and cousin and best friend of many people, Bridget Vasek said of her husband. He was honest, loving, dependable, positive, supporting. The Vasicks were married for 17 years. They met two years before they got married on a blind date arranged by Dylan Vasick's father. They've lived in Springville for about six or seven years. Dylan Vasick worked in tub and fiberglass repair and spent a lot of his free time riding motorcycles. Bridget said some of her best memories with her husband are riding motorcycles together along with the couple's two daughters. He also was part of a Soldiers for Christ motorcycle ministry group. He was not riding a motorcycle when he was hit Tuesday. Beside his wife and daughters, Dylan is survived by his parents, a brother, and several other extended family members, as well as many friends who are close enough to be considered family. Bridget Vasek said she had a house full of family who had come together to mourn on Wednesday. And this story by Trish Mahaffey on page two. Testimony starts today for Chicago man charged with shooting a Lynn deputy. Jury selection continues today for a Chicago man accused of firing 10 rounds at a Lynn County Sheriff's deputy while fleeing a convenience store robbery in Coggin. Stanley L. Donahue, age 38, is charged with attempted murder of a peace officer, two counts of first-degree robbery, two counts of false imprisonment, willful injury, attempt to elude, disarming a police officer, tracking in stolen weapons, and possession of a firearm as a felon. Jurors filled out questionnaires Tuesday and jury selection started that afternoon with potential jurors who had any knowledge of the case being questioned in small panels to avoid tainting others in the pool. No jury was selected on Wednesday, and questioning will continue this morning. Testimony likely will begin in the afternoon. Donahue is accused of robbing the Casey's General Store on Highway 13 in Coggin on June twenty second, forcing two clerks into a cooler and stealing cash, cigarette cartons, and personal belongings, according to a criminal complaint. This story by Brittany Miller is titled Watershed Management Authorities Need Funding. Iowa's watershed management authorities are making positive impacts, but they need more funding, according to a recent Center for Rural Affairs report. The Iowa legislature first enabled watershed management authorities in 2010 following the 2008 flood. There are, they are agreements between cities, counties, and soil and water conservation districts that coordinate water quality improvement and flood mitigation efforts with landowners in watersheds or areas where water drains into a common water body. Iowa's 27 existing watershed management authorities cover 40 percent of the state. Across the board, they have received a patchwork of funding from all levels of government along with community support. However, there is no long-term stable financial support for such entities. Federal and state grants eventually dry up. For instance, the $97 million invested into the Iowa Watershed Approach, which supported staff at a third of the authorities, was exhausted last summer. Local support helps bolster the group, but they're not always guaranteed. The Center for Rural Affairs, a regional nonprofit focused on strengthening rural communities, surveyed participating Iowa watershed management authorities in early 2022 and January of this year to capture a snapshot of each entity's capacity, plans, and needs. More than two-thirds of the state's watershed management authorities reported having completed and in-progress plans for shaping the local watershed. The surveys showed that the groups have completed more than 2,600 conservation efforts like cover crops, edge-of-field practices, wetland restoration across the state. Yet due to funding constraints, watershed management authorities told the Center for Rural Affairs that they're losing the employees and capacity needed for implementing such projects, creating unmet demand for local conservation practices. A lot of people are excited to fund conservation practices that are going to make a difference across the state, but there is a lot less funding available for that staff person, said Kate Hansen, senior policy associate for the center and author of the report. That person is really critical. Seven watershed management authorities lost significant staffing capacity last year, with many transitioning to bare-bones administrative support, according to the surveys. Two more may follow suit this year. Thirteen authorities had full-time watershed management coordinators at the beginning of 2022. Only seven remain. More than 70 percent of survey respondents said having more stable funding sources for a coordinator would significantly support their efforts. Cedar Rapids takes part in the Middle Cedar, Lower Cedar, and Indian Creek Watershed Management Authorities. The city contributes cash to each entity on an annual basis, which helps support coordinators and administrative help, along with grants. But the Cedar River watershed covers 7,500 square miles, most of which are upstream of Cedar Rapids. The size and scope creates a constant need for funding and staff to meet demands, which often can't be fulfilled. The challenge to everyone involved is monumental, said Mary Beth Stevenson, the Cedar Rapids Watershed and Source Water Program Manager. Jennifer Fentel, Director of the Environmental Services Department for the East Iowa Council of Governments, works with several watershed management authorities, including those Cedar Rapids belonged to. Some of the groups she works with are either in between full-time coordinators or working with a part-time coordinator. While she helps out with administrative tasks, like organizing meetings and identifying funding opportunities, she can't visit with farmers and landowners like coordinators can. That's a skill we desperately need, she said. We're building it with these opportunities of grant programs But we're then losing it because of the temporary nature of grant programs. We would love to see the legislature take a look at this and see if there might be a role that the state can play in supporting these coordinators, she said. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest column today is from Lance Lillibridge, and the title, Carbon Capture Will Help Iowa Lead on Energy. As a farmer in Iowa, one of my biggest concerns is always having a market for the products I grow. Years ago, before the ethanol boom, I can remember times when it was difficult to deliver but one load of corn in a day to a river terminal or processor. The day would involve loading the truck, driving to the unload destination, and waiting your turn to unload, in some cases turning into a 14-hour day. September 11 changed everything and this country realized its dependence on fossil fuels and the ethanol boom began. Grow your own energy. Since the start, the industry has become extremely efficient not only at converting starches to energy, but also growing corn specifically. Renewable energy from corn is loaded with benefits. Over 4,000 products come from corn Now with the production of ethanol comes greenhouse gases, GHGs. The fermentation process creates this. The same thing happens naturally when plant material breaks down. As the world decides to decarbonize, one very efficient way to do that is through carbon capture technology at ethanol plants. As purchasers around the globe and here domestically look at buying energy that has a low carbon index score, ethanol has the potential to be unbeatable with this technology and the farming practices that provide the feedstock for its production. By capturing the GHGs and compressing them, it becomes pure carbon that can be transported through pipelines to underground geological storage. Another excellent advantage to this infrastructure is that it can be tapped into as new technologies arrive for using this carbon. I truly believe that a realistic, decarbonized world comes in this model that is constantly renewable and sustainable for decades to come. It would be the safest product moved in pipelines next to water because of its pure forms. It is not explosive and not flammable. Unless this infrastructure is built, we will be disadvantaged as an energy supplier, and plants will most likely begin closing, and the markets for our products will fade. This should concern everyone in Iowa, as corn is a monster of a contributor to our economy. Iowa is number one in so many things, it would be a shame if we didn't retain the title for homegrown energy for decades, if not centuries, to come. Again, that submitted by Lance Lillibridge, who grows corn, soybeans, and alfalfa in Benton County. 24-Hour Dorman today is titled, It Should Be Hard to Banish a Book. Your Iowa House Government Oversight Committee met on Monday evening. This was a rare and auspicious happening under the Golden Dome of Wisdom. This was its first meaty meeting of the season. Maybe you're thinking it called in the Department of Natural Resources to explain how it failed to gain information on chemicals and procedures used at a moringo plant before an explosion. Maybe it asked the Department of Revenue how it miscalculated the residential property tax rollback scrambling local budgets. Okay, it wasn't that sort of meaty. Instead, the committee heard from five moms for liberty who ran into problems trying to get Obscene, in quotes, books removed from the school libraries and curriculum. So it was red meaty for conservatives crusading to ban books about and written by LGBTQ authors and people of color. The moms displayed and read the most shocking passages they could find from a list of books. There was, of course, Gender Queer, a graphic memoir by Maya Kabob, or excuse me, Kobabe, chronicling the non-binary author's experiences growing up, coming out, and dealing with adversity. Lawmakers were shown a handful of sexually explicit images from a 240-page book with hundreds of drawings. It's very hard to hear people say, quote, this book is not appropriate to young people, quote, when it's like, I was a young person for whom this book would have been not only appropriate, but so, so necessary. Babe told NBC News in 2021. There are a lot of people who are questioning their gender, questioning their sexuality, and having a real hard time finding honest accounts of somebody else on the same journey. There are people for whom this is vital and for whom this could maybe even be life-saving. So, this book wasn't meant for middle-aged state lawmakers? Question mark. Another targeted book is The Absolute True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. The main character, Junior, leaves a Native American reservation to attend an all-white high school. It won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Under Iowa law, these books are not obscene. A book is obscene if, quote, the material taken as a whole lacks serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. End quote. These books, taken as a whole, are not obscene, not even close. And this isn't just about those passages. It's about a black author writing about violent policing, an indigenous author writing about racism, and an LGBTQ author writing about real experiences growing up in America. That's what they don't want kids to read. The parents seem to argue it should be easier to remove books from libraries and curriculum, a decision that could affect hundreds of students and parents who disagree. Republican politicians, such as Governor Kim Reynolds, have led them to believe parents' rights means their rights only. The rest of us can shut up. Actually, it should be damn hard to banish a book. Freedom of expression still is an important principle in the country at this hour. I've never been much for slippery slopes, but it seems like we're standing at the top of an authoritarian bobsled run. Parents have a right to challenge books, but they have no right to get their way. That's submitted by 24-Hour Doorman. One community letter today is titled, School Choice Brings Competition. As a retired public and private school teacher, I believe school choice is innovative and a great idea. We know that no two students are alike, and everyone learns differently. For this reason, we need to choose a school according to the school environment, curriculum, resource books, and size of student body. My wife and I were both educators, and we decided to have our children attend a private school in the early years and homeschool our children in the latter years. All five of our children performed well in college and are active, productive citizens. Whether the school choice is public, private, charter, or home school, parents have the best understanding of what is best for their children and where they can best succeed. One size does not fit all. The best aspect of school choice is that it will encourage the various schools within a region to compete for parents' trust and respect. The cream always rises to the top and so will the school that respects parents' authority staff, and student body. When a student succeeds, we all succeed. If we truly want what is best for the child, school choice is the best answer. I want to thank everyone who supported school choice and worked hard to see it pass into law. That's signed by Joe Peters from Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 9, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices. First, from Manchester, Brenda Lee Carper, 62, died Tuesday, February 7. Leonard Muller Funeral Home is in charge. From Swisher, Sally M. Ford, age 75, died Wednesday, February 8. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, Cedar Rapids. And in West Des Moines, Sandra L. Rinderknecht, 84, of West Des Moines, died Wednesday, February 1st. Iowa cremation from Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. In the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids, Alice Marjorie King, age 96, passed away peacefully at the Living Center West Nursing Home in Cedar Rapids, Monday, February 6th. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Saturday, February 11, from 11.30 until service time at 2.30, with the certified celebrant, Dr. James Coyle, officiating interment to follow at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery Garden of Tranquility. From Cedar Rapids, Raymond Allen Stull, 65, passed away at his home Monday, February 6th. A private gravesite service will be held at a later date. Condolences for the family can be left at iowacremation.com. In Cedar Rapids, Cheryl Lee Willis, age 61, died Sunday, February 5, following a long illness. Graveside service will be at 2 p.m. Friday, February 10, at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Please leave a message, tribute, or memory at cedarmemorial.com. In Cedar Rapids, Irwin, known as Irv C. Votrabeck, age 86, died Sunday, February 5, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Visitation will be from 4 to 7, Friday, February 10, at Brosch Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest, where there will be a 3.30 p.m. prayer service. Funeral Mass will be at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 11, at St. Jude's Catholic Church, with burial to follow at St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery in Fairfax. You may visit Brosh Chapel to leave an online condolence. From Blair, Wisconsin, Ivan, known as Wendell Turnipseed, age 92, passed peacefully on Monday, February 6, Funeral services will be held at 1 p.m. Thursday, February 16, in the Jack Funeral Home in Whitehall. Pastor Dale Moe will officiate. Burial will be in the Secklerville Cemetery in rural Hickston. Friends may call one hour prior to the service. From Atkins, Patricia, known as Pat Lynn Hawkins de Clotz, age 73, passed away Tuesday, February 7, surrounded by love and family. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 10, at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in Atkins. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in Atkins, with the Rev. Douglas Woltamath officiating. Interment will be held at St. Stephen's Cemetery, rural Atkins, following the service. From Monticello, James E., known as Jim, Manternak, 86, passed away Monday, February 6, at Mercy Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 11, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Monticello, where a Mass of Christian burial will start at 11 a.m. Burial will be at Sacred Heart Cemetery. The Rev. Paul Baldwin will officiate. Online condolences may be left for the family at KramerFuneral.com. From Harper, Mary Kathleen, known as Kay Beinhart, age 80, passed away Monday, February sixth at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Funeral Mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, February tenth at Holy Trinity Parish, St. Mary Catholic Church in Kyoto, the Reverend Robert Lathrop presiding. Burial will be at Holy Trinity Cemeteries, St. Elizabeth Cemetery in Harper. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 9 at the church, where there will be a vigil service at 3.30. You can visit powellfuneralhomes.com to leave a tribute or memory. Turning now to the sports page, this girl's basketball notebook story by Jeff Linder in year six iowa city liberty has a championship crew jamie brant has been with the iowa city liberty girls basketball program since its infancy the climb has been slow maybe slower than brant would have preferred but in year six the lightning are a championship outfit to start this program from scratch to where we are now it means a lot brant said this group of seniors has worked extremely hard they've grown so much they're playing really good basketball now. Liberty at thirteen and six overall, eleven and two in the Mississippi Valley Conference, wrapped up a share of the Mississippi Division Championship on Tuesday. The Lightning defeated Cedar Rapids Jefferson fifty-one to thirty-five at home, while Cedar Falls, with a record of thirteen and six, stubbed its toe at Dubuque Wallert fifty-six to forty nine. A win at Cedar Rapids Prairie on Friday locks up the title solo for the Bolts. We've really tried to focus on ourselves, Brandt said, but yeah, I look around the conference and see what everybody else is doing. We talk about playing our best in February. Liberty has won four straight games, six of its last seven. It's a far cry from the early days when the Bolts compiled a total of 16 wins in their first four seasons thanks in part to Jasmine Barney's move from Cedar Falls they jumped from 211 or excuse me 12 to 11 last year and now a championship breakthrough the team has really bought into defense and they hadn't in the past brant said we live and die with the three pointer and we can play with anyone when we shoot the ball well but they've realized we can still win when we're not shooting well liberty averages 27.3 three-point attempts per game and is shooting 29% from long range. Barney, a senior, averages 16.5 points, 6.2 rebounds, and 2.8 assists per game. Sophomore Madeline Casey adds 9.1 points per contest. Despite losing roughly 73% of its scoring punch from last year's state tournament, Springville remains highly relevant. The Orioles at 17 and 4 are one of the top area class 1A teams that begin regional play tonight. They take a seven game winning streak into their home contest with Easton Valley, who has a record of 5 and 13. Freshman Rowan Jacoby has made an immediate impact, averaging 12 points and eight rebounds per game. Among other area notables, South Iowa Cedar League West Division Co-Champion Montezuma at 17 and 3 opens at home against Hillcrest Academy 0 and 19. And SICL East Champ Iowa Valley 14 and 6 welcomes Belle Plaine at 2 and 18. The area's most highly ranked 1A teams are number 3 North Lynn 19 and 1 and number 9, El Cater Central, 19-2. and two. They earned first-round buys and start regional play next Tuesday. Turning now to the Hoopla page, the cover story, Come to the Cabaret. If you go, Cabaret will appear at Theater Cedar Rapids February 10 to March 5. The show is at 7.30 p.m. Thursday to Saturday and 2.30 on Sunday. Ticket prices are $25 to $61. You can obtain tickets online or by calling the box office at 319-366-8591. Tipsy Tomato is opening in Cedar Rapids. A new restaurant is being planned for Shelsburg. The wait is over. After much anticipation, Tipsy Tomato will hold its grand opening today. The new pizza restaurant from Epic Catering, LLC, at 319 7th Street, Southeast, joins the triplex being planned by the restaurant holding company. An upscale reservation-ly concept was the first to open in October. Tipsy Tomatoes opening is planned to coincide with National Pizza Day. Signs for the restaurant first appeared in April of 2022, The restaurant will offer specialty crafted pizzas like the Tipsy Green Pizza with a pistachio pesto base, arugula, and cherry tomatoes, or tried-and-true favorites like barbecue and Hawaiian. With a casual atmosphere and patio, the restaurant will also serve a variety of appetizers, salads, craft cocktails, and craft beer. An opening date for the third concept in the triplex has not been announced. Siena Italiana, an Italian carry-out-only concept, was previously planned to join Midtown Reserve and Tipsy Tomato. After the opening of Midtown Reserve, that idea had been scrapped in favor of Chapo's Tacos, a carry-out taco and margarita concept, according to Epic Catering representatives. And in Shellsburg, the owner of Rock Bar American Grill in Cedar Rapids is bringing a new restaurant to Shellsburg this month. Owner Kirby Patton plans to open Local Edition at 100 Pearl Street by February 15th. With a cozy renovated interior featuring a new piano, fireplace, ambient lighting, and games, the restaurant will feature a menu of burgers, chicken wraps, salads, and pastas, plus breakfast on the weekends. Diners can wash it all down with a full cocktail menu, 10 beers on tap, or 25-ounce Bloody Marys on the weekend. The restaurant opens on the lower level as part of a full remodel of the former People's Savings Bank building, which houses two apartments on the second floor. The space previously was home to Coop's Roadhouse Bar and Grill, but it's been vacant since it closed a few years ago. Patton noted it was home to other restaurants and bars before Coop's as well. This story by Elijah Decius, What's Cookin'? The Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance is turning pandemic adaptations into a tradition that gives diners and restaurants more flexibility for Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week. The 11th annual Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week, running from Friday, February 17, to Sunday, February 26, features 21 restaurants, breweries, and distilleries in Cedar Rapids, Marion, and Swisher. The 10-day format covering two full weekends will give local foodies more opportunities to taste limited-time specials, many of which are exclusive to Restaurant Week. We saw so much success with the 10-day extended time. For the 2022 event, it only made sense to do it again this year, said Nikki Wilcox, Communications and Marketing Director at the Economic Alliance. Restaurant Week is a community favorite, and we're looking forward to showcasing the amazing cuisine we have in the metro later this month. Amid unprecedented staffing challenges in the restaurant industry, The 10-day format was introduced last year to replace the Fork and Knife Feast kickoff that used to bring diners and restaurants into one place for a day. Previously, Restaurant Weeks lasted seven days. Restaurants that are offering a diverse array of cuisine options and price points are selected by an outside committee. Here's this year's menu. 30 Hop at 951 Blairs Ferry Road Northeast Black Sheep Social Club at 600 1st Street Southeast, Cedar Ridge, 1441 Merack Road Northwest in Swisher, The Chop House Downtown at 411 1st Street Southeast, Crosby's at 1028 3rd Street Southeast, Dash Coffee Roasters, 123rd Avenue Southwest, Groundswell Cafe, 201 3rd Avenue Southwest. La Casinta Bar and Grill, 5400 Edgewood Road Northeast. Lion Brewing Company, 59 16th Avenue. Lucky's on 16th, 86 16th Avenue. Midtown Reserve, at 319 7th Street. Need Pizza, 207 2nd Avenue. O's Grill, located at 3911 Center Point Road Northeast. And Peddler's Fork, 2010 Sylvia Avenue, Northeast. Also, Pub 217, 217 3rd Street, Sacred Cow Tavern, the Class Act Restaurant, that's at 7725 Kirkwood Boulevard, the Edison Pub and Eatery, 475 Northland Avenue, the Hipster, Eleven Twenty Seventh Avenue in Marion, the Map Room, 416 3rd Street, Southeast, and finally, TikTok, 617th Street Northeast. If you go, it's Cedar Rapids Restaurant Week 21, participating restaurants from February 17th to the 26th. Enjoy restaurants at your own pace over the 10 days and win prizes while doing it. Find punch cards at participating restaurants and receive a stamp from restaurants with the purchase of $20. Punch cards can be turned in to the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance for a chance to win prizes and gift cards to those local restaurants. In the music category, No Bad Vibes is the headline of this Hoopla story. Aging is often as important as a clever lyric or catchy guitar riff for Old Dominion. The veteran country band, which has more than its share of inside jokes, is all about cracking each other up. When the band's label asked for an alternate version of songs from its eponymous album, the group compiled, or excuse me, complied by creating songs full of meows. We take our craft seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously, said vocalist Matthew Ramsey while calling from his Nashville home. If you go Old Dominion, the No Bad Vibes Tour, with opening acts, Frank Ray, Grayland James, and Cassie Ashton, will appear at the Alliant Energy Powerhouse, 7.30 p.m. on Saturday. Tickets are $30 to $70. And this ex-cop finds success with Latino Country Band, this by Diana Nolan. Frank Ray never gave up on his impossible dream, turning it into a full- future of possibilities. That's the example the Latino country singer-songwriter hopes his three girls will take into their hearts. Born in New Mexico, three miles from the border, he grew up steeped in his Mexican heritage, language, and Latin and country music. He's proud of his roots singing in Spanish and English, but decided to substitute his middle name for his last name as a performer. We just wanted something that rolls off the tongue a little bit better, he said. Born Francisco Gomez, he now is known as Frank Ray. If you go, Frank Ray is opening for Old Dominion at the Alliant Energy Powerhouse. Again, that's 7.30 on Saturday. In the theater category, Continuing, A Walk in the Woods through February 12 is playing at the Riverside Theater in Iowa City. Through February 11, Braided Sorrow is appearing at the University of Iowa, set in the Mexican city of Juarez, where 16-year-old Alma works 12-hour shifts in an American-owned factory to help provide for her family. Again, that's at the UI Theater Building that is shown at 8 p.m. today to, through Saturday. Tickets are $20 for adults and $15 for seniors. You can uh, obtain those tickets at uiowa.edu tickets. Almost Maine is playing in the Giving Tree Theater in Marion. Welcome to Almost Maine, a place that's so far north, it's almost in Canada. And it's not quite a town because its residents never got around to getting organized, so it almost doesn't exist. One cold, clear winter night as the northern lights hover in the star-filled sky, the residents find themselves falling in and out of love in unexpected and hilarious ways. That's appearing at the Giving Tree Theater in Marion, February 17th to the 26th at 7.30 p.m., and tickets are available for $21 at thegivingtreetheater.com. Turning back to the Iowa Today page, this story by Vanessa Miller. UI Nurses Union accuses regents of prohibited practice in talks. After two bargaining sessions and a few proposals and counter-offers, the State Board of Regents canceled all upcoming meetings with the union representing more than 3,800 University of Iowa healthcare workers and declared an impasse. Because union representatives wanted to keep meeting and negotiating and weren't ready to declare an impasse, their attorney Tuesday filed a prohibited practice complaint against the regents and the state's Public Employment Relations Board. That complaint accuses the board of violating Iowa Code Chapter 20 which laid out at its inception in 1974 the state's aim to promote harmonious and cooperative relationships between government and its employees. But Republican lawmakers in 2017 stripped many collective bargaining rights from most public sector unions, removing as mandatory bargaining topics items like vacations, holidays, overtime pay, and health and workplace safety issues. Lawmakers kept in wages as a mandatory bargaining topic. The Code still prohibits public employees from refusing to negotiate in good faith on mandatory topics or interfering or restraining public employees from exercising their rights, which are the violations UIHC union representatives are alleging in their complaint. The board cannot simply declare an impasse, attorney Emily Schott-Hood told board negotiators on behalf of the UIHC union in an email on Monday. My client had room to move on mandatory subjects of bargaining, so I'm not confident that we meet the legal definition of impasse. It's disheartening to see that your client is refusing to bargain in good faith. UIHC nurses aired concerns last month over low morale as staffing levels pale in comparison to rising patient demand. They reported more patient violence, wanting motivation to pick up extra shifts, and colleagues leaving to become traveling nurses. The full-time average base salary for UIHC staff nurses is about $70,000, a figure that varies depending on experience. Officials told the Gazette in October. The average traveling nurse salary in Iowa in 2023 is 95,366, below the national average of 105,818, and below other Midwest states like Minnesota and Wisconsin. For average staff nurse pay, Zip Recruiter reported Iowa ranks eighth lowest with an average annual of $63,854 below all other Midwestern states, including Nebraska and Illinois. Wrapping up with the weather, rain and snow likely today with wind out of the Northwest at 20 to 30 plus. Looking for a high of 35 in Cedar Rapids and a low of 16, 39 in Iowa City. The normal high for today is 31 and the normal low is 13. We saw a record high of 56 degrees in 2009. The record low of 25 below zero was set in 1899. Mostly sunny going through the weekend with the highs from 27 on Friday inching up to 43 on Sunday. Sunset tonight is at 5.32 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.09 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 22 minutes of daylight. We're in the full moon phase with moonrise at 9.32 p.m. and moonset at 9.29 a.m. That does it for the reading of Cedar Rapids Gazette's paper for today, Thursday, February 9. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day. Some would call 88-year-old Sally Jackson a lucky senior. A few years ago, a family member offered to move in and care for Sally so that she wouldn't have to leave the comfort of her own home. But soon after, one of Sally's neighbors, Carol, paid a visit, unannounced. Something wasn't quite right. Sally's demeanor and physical appearance had changed. Luckily, Carol was aware of warning signs that might signal elder abuse such as bruises poor hygiene isolation depression appearing withdrawn or unusually quiet as if to hide something when victimized elderly people often feel ashamed confused but an alert neighbor helped Sally not all abused seniors are as lucky As Sally Jackson. McGruff the Crime Dog here. The National Crime Prevention Council wants to help you and your loved ones prevent elder abuse. Know what to look for. Know how to report it to local law enforcement agencies. To learn more, go to ncpc.org forward slash seniors. That's ncpc.org slash seniors. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Department of Justice.